Let's take a moment and talk about what a change agent is. Because um, different organizations have different um, people who sometimes show up and all of a sudden that things begin to change when they show up. A change agent is a person from either inside or outside the organization. For our purposes, the organization is humanity. So, you know, he kind of showed up from outside as an insider and he transforms it by focusing on such matters as organizational effectiveness, improvement, and development. Um, the focus is the people in the organization and their interactions and how that changes. And there are at least five characteristics of a change agent that I think are worth knowing. And as you think about these, I want you to think about whether or not you believe Jesus was a change agent. Because a change agent begins with a clear vision. A change agent has a clear vision. And if you're not sure if Jesus is a change agent, you know that some of his sayings throughout his time is something like the kingdom of heaven is like. You've heard me say that before, and you've certainly heard him say that before. When he would say that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, he was giving you a vision of what life can be on earth as it is in heaven. And he had this incredibly clear vision. They were meant to clarify what it meant to live in the kingdom of God. And he thoroughly understood what kingdom living was because he came from heaven. And so uh, a change agent is somebody who's able to pitch forward to the future. And it's not a dream, it's clarity of what can and will be. That's the difference. We talked about dreamers before and that's great. But this is somebody who's not just dreaming, who understands what life is gonna be like if we can just lean into that change, if we can just move into that change. So a change agent has a clear vision. Second characteristic of a change agent is that he or she is patient yet persistent. Jesus labored day and night with the disciples, who I think we can all agree were not necessarily the sharpest tools in the shed. The disciples were a great group of guys, but they struggled to understand, and he labored with them. You know, as they were on the journey with him for three years, he labored with them, and he spoke in many different ways so that they might understand that he was constantly preaching and teaching about the same thing of the kingdom again and again. So a change agent not only has clarity of vision, but is also patient and persistent, talks in many different ways in order to get that vision with clarity across. But a change agent does one other thing. Well, a few other things, but at least this one other thing. A change agent asks tough questions. When he asks a question like, who do you say that I am? Who does this coin belong to? Which is easier, to forgive or to heal? What he does is he asks these difficult questions that have a tendency to expose who we are it exposes our biases, it exposes our desires. Any organization that is going to change has the ability to ask very difficult questions of itself. And when an organization ceases to ask difficult questions, the organization is on a downward turn that we need to be concerned about. And so it's very important that we are able to, through Jesus' leading, ask tough questions of the organization that we belong to. Now, people don't like that, especially organizations that are just kind of humming along. Because the moment you ask a tough question, it may open the door to some really interesting innovation. And nobody likes that. And you can tell the way that Jesus was, was um, pushed back upon you can tell that they did not want him asking some of these questions, questions of authority, 
questions of reality. What's really going on? Are we really doing what we were supposed to be doing? These are very difficult questions. And in fact, asking those big questions gives you a, a clarity on the reality. My dad did a, a survey, I guess you could call it, he did, um, called Value Genesis. He started in 1990 and it went all the way through 2010. If you're an educator, you probably know about this. And he, he, he asked questions of the youth in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he asked it every 10 years and he asked really important questions. In fact, some of you probably took the Value Genesis survey like in your junior Bible class and you thought, why am I answering 290 something questions? This is way too long. I kept telling him and he kept looking at me like, you know nothing. And he was right, he was right. So he asked these questions, but a little bit of a concern as he was moving into the third time of doing this in 2010 or a little bit later, um, the, the church was kind of concerned that they were asking these questions about ask at-risk youth. And there were certain questions that they didn't want to ask. And that really troubled my dad because he said, no, we have to know the reality. If we're not going to ask these questions, how do we know what's going on? See, this is the problem. An organization needs to look at itself if it's not willing to ask difficult questions and go through the pain of learning the reality of where we're really dealing. And so Jesus was forcing people to ask tough questions about their faith tradition, about what actual reality was and what it meant to be someone who is in connection with God. A change agent is someone who is knowledgeable and leads by example. You wanna know what love is? Love like Jesus. Love one another to understand me. Who do people say that I am? That question right there, that question is a powerful question. Jesus only expected us to go where he was going to go. And where did Jesus go? Jesus went all the way. Jesus went all the way to the grave to show us what love was. And so that's a pretty important thing to understand because he knew where he was headed and yet he was still willing to go there. He was knowledgeable and he led by example. The question I guess I would ask you is, what does that mean today? What does that mean to be willing to go to the grave for someone? Because we have a tendency not to think about it in such traumatic terms. You're probably not gonna have to go to the grave for someone when it comes to your Christian love, but what does it mean? Something to continue to think about. And lastly, a change agent is someone who has built strong relationships built on trust. You know those disciples that we talked about? Those relatively, relatively unsharp crayons? Well, you know, not one of them was willing to deny Jesus after he was resurrected. In fact, we are Christians because of the commitment that they had and the trust that they put in Jesus. They trusted until death and into death. That's real trust. So I think we can start these texts by taking a look and saying, okay, Jesus was a change agent. He was the catalyst for change. Something that had been one way becomes another as the catalyst for change even pushes back on the assumption. So we're gonna take a look at John chapter 12 and we're gonna go through verses one through 19 today and there's two stories that we need to take a look at. One is when Mary anoints his feet and the other one is the story of the triumphant entry. And the reason why we're looking at these two stories is because Jesus changes the meaning of what's going on in these two stories. So it starts like this, chapter 12, verse one. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. Now that's pretty exciting. He raised this guy from the dead and they were hanging out. 
Um, it makes you wonder what the conversation would have been like. How do you talk to somebody who's just been dead? How do you, how do you get them back up to speed? I mean, he wasn't dead for that long, but he was, I mean, pretty far away. You know, were there things that he, were there things that he was kind of happy about not having to do because he was dead and now he's got to do them? That he was alive again? You wonder. Um, but I, I'm always fascinated about this. Jesus was able to change the meaning of death because when Jesus met death, he simply just did away with it. He wasn't having it, whether it was Lazarus or whether it was Jairus' daughter. Jesus was not interested in death. He was only interested in life, and he was only interested in life abundant, as we see in John 10.10. 10. This is always the way of Jesus. You know, we have a tendency to live looking out for death. It is constantly on our minds, especially as you get a little older, I'm finding out. Oh, to be 18 again and think nothing can touch you. Now I think every time I, you know, get in the car, or my kids get in the car, I think, oh, I hope it's okay. But for Jesus, it was a nuisance. That's all death was. One that needed to be done away with. So every time he came in contact with it, he just got rid of it. He changed what death really was. John 12, 2, a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with them. Sorry, this is just some context. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance. Now, some of the other synoptic gospels, um, some of the synoptics, talk about this happening, and they said that um, he, she anointed his feet as well as his head. That may well have been true, but either one was not the point. The point was that it was spikenard. Now, spikenard is a plant that only grows in the Himalayan mountains of India and Nepal. Mary's fragrant oil of spikenard was a rare imported product to find in Israel. How expensive was spikenard Mary, that Mary used to anoint Jesus' feet? Well, one denarius was the wage for one day's labor. So if Judas were to estimate the value of Mary Spikenard, and it was correct, it would be 300 denarii. That would have been someone's annual salary, equivalent to several tens of thousands of dollars today. That is a lot of money. And as you know, Judas had an issue with this, right? It was, it was very costly, and Judas had an issue in the next text that we see. Judas's issue was that it should be used for something else. Let's go to that next text, if you would. That'd be awesome. Thank you. John 12, 4. Um, John 12, 4. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, remember, the, the narrator here is going to put in a little bit of... Uh, you know, a little bit of editorial, if you will. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would betray him, he said, that perfume is worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor, which sounds right. The money should have been given to the poor. That would have made a lot of sense, John 12, 5. It sounds right. But the editor's gonna say a little bit about Judas. And this is what he says. Not that he cared for the poor. In verse 6, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So John calls out Judas, and this is the beauty of writing the story later on. He's able to editorialize and give a little color commentary. John 12, 7, Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. And so this is a turn, because you would think that Jesus would want to take care of the poor. But Jesus was making a point that at this time, a more correct decision 
was not just to take that money and give it to the poor. The more correct decision was to recognize the presence of God in this place. It was to recognize that God was here. And not only that, she did it in preparation for the burial. You see, his life is an illustration of what it means to follow, Christ, to follow God. John 12, 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, this is an, an often misunderstood statement. He's obviously not saying that we shouldn't do anything about the poor, but he's saying that the presence of God is important to recognize in this place. And sometimes so are the rituals we do in the midst of that presence. See, Jesus did not do the expected. The nard could have gone to the poor, but Jesus made it mean something else, something even more important. Because now, that nard, it wasn't about the money anymore. It was about something else. It was about the meaning that was imbued. Jesus changed the ointment from money to meaning. It became a sacrifice and a sacrament when it came into contact with who Jesus was. Now, this is important for us because as we follow Christ, even the same things that we do every single day may have a different meaning and therefore they become something different in Christ because that's what Jesus does. He changes everything. John 12, 9, it continues, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Again, this is just more context, but Jesus is becoming more and more known, more and more popular because he was creating meaning in people's lives. John 12, 10, it says, the, then the leading priest decided that they had to kill Lazarus too. Now, this makes sense. Get rid of all the witnesses. They couldn't stop him, but for killing him. And he was now becoming more than a thorn in their side, he was a stick in their side. People weren't just listening, their authority was shifting. And see, when people's authority shifts, it changes everything. John 12, 11, for it was because of him that many of the people deserted them and believed Jesus. They'd seen the effects of Jesus' kingdom. By the way, when authority shifts in someone's life, the old structures will always fight for control of that person's life. Anytime there is a revolution afoot, the old regime fights back and does it with significant violence and anger and vitriol. It doesn't want people to just go and live their lives the way that they can because it has something to lose if they do. If, if the authority is shifting in someone's life, there is a lot of anxiety accompanied with it. Now, we, we've gone on like a three-year journey with the musical Hamilton, so we've studied a lot of the American Revolution. That's because of my son, um, who loved Hamilton so much, we all decided we should probably know a little bit more about this, and we went and saw it, and then we got the books, and then we read everything, and lo and behold, we learned something, which is great. But one of the things that we learned is that King George wasn't super happy about the American Revolution was he? He certainly wasn't. In fact, he sang a song about it. <laughs> in the musical, I suppose. I don't know if he really did. I don't, I don't imagine that he did. But in the, and it's some of the best parts of the musical. And um, I won't get into it, and I certainly won't sing it, so... Oh, you don't want me to. But, but this is what happened. When authority shifts, and by the way, this is true in our spiritual lives as well, when the authority shifts from tradition to Jesus, by the way, it doesn't diminish the tradition. It actually makes the tradition more important in your life. But the tradition doesn't know what to do with it because it no longer has control. 
the tradition becomes an expression of the authority of Jesus in your life rather than the controlling narrative of your life, which is good, changes the meaning of tradition. But nobody likes that, right? Because nobody likes a heretic that day. Everybody likes a heretic 300 years later. We think they're fine. Like we love, we love Martin Luther 300 years later. Not so much a fan on that Thursday when he was standing in front of his peers at the Diet of Worms. But we were okay with him now. We think he's great. When authority shifts in someone's life, the old structures will always fight for control. John 12, 12, continuing on. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city and a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Man, the way people acted on Palm Sunday contrasted so dramatically with the crowds clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion just five days later. I mean, some in the crowds would have differed, but this was also the last time the onlookers thought that maybe Jesus was going to assume an earthly kingship and free his nation. Some of the people in the crowd would have been the same on Sunday that were on Thursday. When it becomes clear that this was not his purpose, disillusionment and hostility appeared and reappeared. And then we've got this little bit within the text where it shows that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy that we see in Zechariah 9.9. John 12.14 says this, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. This is Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus does this. His disciples didn't understand it, by the way, at this time that this was a fulfillment of that prophecy, says Scripture. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and they realized that these things had been written about him. This is kind of foreshadowing to what's gonna happen next. John 12, 17, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it, right? This is just ancient social networking, really. <laughs> ancient Instagramming. John 12, 18, that was the reason so many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Now, there's something important here that I think we need to recognize. What's important is this. They, they were coming because they had heard of the supernatural. And supernatural things often bring people in. But five days later, they were clamoring for his death. So the supernatural doesn't always sustain our faith. That's relationship. And I mean, we have a tendency to think the supernatural never even happens anymore, right? We've drummed that out of our faith tradition. We should probably recognize that God still moves, right? In wisdom, right? We, we, if we think about it theologically, but to think that God's never gonna do anything again, never do anything supernatural again, should we really be thinking about that? Do we really think God has absented himself and his power is absent of this world? In this world, now we still believe God does amazing things, but the supernatural 
doesn't always sustain us. That has to come from something even more. John 12, 19, which is where we end, it says, then the Pharisees said to each other, well, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. They realized like, oh, there's a problem. Then they started to work a lot harder. You see, Jesus changed the spikenard from money to meaning. He changed the death of Lazarus, Lazarus from death to life. Jesus rode in on a donkey, but was taken out wrapped in burial clothes. He redefined what victory even was. When you come in contact with Jesus, you gotta remember, everything's gonna change. Five days is all it took for the disillusionment to take hold. Change agents are often vilified, but they take it because they understand the longer solution and the deeper meaning. Jesus even changed the meaning of the triumphal entry. They stood on the side of the road, rain, waving palm fronds, saying, all right, we're good, he's gonna save us, but they didn't understand what saving meant. He changed the meaning of salvation for them. The question I have for you today is this, what is it that Jesus can touch that needs changing in your life? Is it the pain you're going through? Because if you're going through significant pain, Jesus wants to change that mourning into dancing, says scripture. Are you praying for a kid, for, for maybe a child who, who's left the faith and doesn't wanna have anything to do with it anymore? God can change that journey for that child as well. Are you afraid because of career choices or academic choices that you have to make? God can change the meaning of those decisions. Are you afraid because your marriage is struggling? Maybe that's the journey that God needs to take you through that can be a catalyst for even more power in your marriage. What is it that Jesus can touch that needs changing in your life? But be careful. Be careful because if you begin to ask for the change that Jesus does in those very mundane things that you do every single day in your life, if you begin to ask for those things to change in meaning and purpose in your life, it just might happen. And all of a sudden when that happens, you're not even gonna know how to live your life anymore. And here's the beauty of it. That means you're gonna have to lean on Jesus that much more. That means you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what step I'm supposed to take because I thought death was death and now it's not anymore. I thought pain was pain, but now it's something different. I thought that, I thought that all this hardship was going through was teaching me one thing and now you're teaching me something else. I don't know what to do. I guess I'm just gonna have to follow you. Maybe that's the way we're supposed to lead our lives. Instead of leaning back into the myth of competency, thinking that we know what we're supposed to be doing, we lean into Jesus, knowing that his way is more frightening, his way is scarier, his way has, has less certainty, but more salvation. It has less comfort and convenience, but so much more power and conversion. Maybe that's what it means for everything to change. 
that the things that you put your hand to every single day become a different sort of powerful, not just in your life, but in other people's lives as well. Maybe you will be the catalyst in someone's life as you listen to Jesus to change the meaning in their life. This faith is not just for you, it's for everyone who needs to see Jesus. And the only way that's gonna happen is if you say, Lord, as, I, as you change everything in my life, I'm just gonna lean into who you are because I don't know what's next, but I'm waiting and I'm willing because you're the change agent that changes everything. You can come and you can sit and you can watch and you can consume and you can feel good about your faith or you can walk into the great unknown that is following Jesus where you are afraid every moment of your life, but you are safe in the arms of God. So what do you wanna do? Four weeks, Easter, where we celebrate and we make the ask. We invite people to follow Jesus in a more powerful way than they have before, or maybe for the first time. We need you on this journey. We need your influence to show everyone that Jesus changes everything. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, your grace, your mercy, your power, Jesus, your sacrifice, your overwhelming love for us, may all these become real in our lives today. As we worship you, may our songs ascend to the highest parts of heaven. Lord, we thank you for making our lives unsure, for making things uncertain. We thought we knew what death was, but apparently we have to reevaluate it all. We'll do that. Be with us. In your name I pray. Amen.